So uh, it's been great to be here. This is my the uh, the last talk today. Been, let me let me just say a few things before I get into the talk. It's been great to be here with you these uh, couple of days, and um, I've been really encouraged. I sent to Alex last night. I was really encouraged being here with you guys. Um, so you know, I do I do go out and speak in different places, and um, and I feel a kind of kinship coming here because I feel your congregation is not too distant from from the one I work with. Um, and let me just encourage you with, with a few things that I've seen while I've been here. I think um, one of the things that really strikes me being here amongst you, I think you're, you're a healthy church. I mean, you may not always feel healthy in and of yourself, um, but, but actually I think you are a, you're, you're a healthy church. There's a, a prayerfulness amongst you and a desire to pray and a joy, uh, which is great to see. There's a love amongst you as well. See how you take care of one another and how you... Um, serve one another and encourage one another it's, it's, it's visible I can see that there's a gentleness and, a, and you take care of the weak and the vulnerable and it, that's, that's, that's really beautiful to see it's a real work of the spirit and, and there's also a commitment uh, in you to being a diverse community which is also a, a tremendous work of the spirit and actually is a lot less common than you think um, and that is really wonderful to see and very very encouraging and so I understand that uh, sometimes, you know, ministry sometimes can be a little bit of a slog. Uh, I don't know how it feels for you, maybe, maybe it doesn't feel like it, maybe it does. There will be times when it does, definitely. Um, but be encouraged by what the Holy Spirit is doing amongst you and what he's, what he's generating in Stratum. And, and growth is, is about a whole number of things. Numbers is only one of those things. Um, growth is spiritual fruitfulness, it's diversity, it's a whole range of things. So be encouraged by what the Holy Spirit is working in you and what he's doing in you and, and the kind of community he's, he's generating. And, um, and, give, and give thanks for that. So praise, praise God. Praise God. Well, let's, let's, um, let's get into our passage. Um, what are we looking at? Revelation, isn't it? Revelation. Chapter 21. I'm going to read from verse 22 to 22 verse 5. verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city of the streets. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Father, we commit this time into your hands now. We pray for the power of your spirit. Please breathe on us. In the name of Christ. 
Amen. Now, isn't it great spending a whole weekend thinking about heaven? Isn't that great? It's a great thing to do, isn't it? It's a great use of time. Um, there are lots of things in our lives that get us down, aren't there? Uh, don't always have to be big things. can just be everyday small things. Things that discourage us. Things that depress us at work, in family, uh, in church. Things that stress us. Things that we worry about. There are pains in our lives. And I'm sure amongst us here, there are secret pains. And there are known pains. All kinds of things that, that we are dealing with and facing in our lives. And one of the things actually I find quite hard as a pastor sometimes, working with people, is that I can't fix their pains. You know, I, my wife would say to me, you know, Andy, you, you, you want to sort things out. And it's true, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons sometimes you become a pastor, you want to try and sort things out. And actually God has to teach you, you can't. You can't sort things out. Um, God has to sort things out. And, and so it's great for us to take our minds off ourselves and off our pains and to look to the inheritance that is coming, to look to the world that is to come. You see, if you're an unbeliever, your best life is now. Everything is riding on now. On this world, on this life, on your opportunities now. This world is as good as it gets. But if you're headed for heaven, your best life is still to come. I don't care how good your life is at the moment. It will be nothing compared to what is coming. And if your life is full of pain now, you need to know that the pain you experience now is the only pain you will ever experience. Your struggles now are the only ones you will ever endure. A great new world is coming. A world without pain, without death, without crying or mourning. Now we saw in our second talk that the big thing with this world though, is not simply new bodies or new health or beautiful landscapes or uh, seeing our friends. Great as those things are, the big thing about heaven is God, being with God. Verse 3 of chapter 21, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And so we see that that heaven is fundamentally God-centered. And that helps us answer the kind of question that sometimes people either say, or that we secretly think, won't we be bored in heaven? Well, it's a long time, isn't it? Won't we be bored? Won't it be a bit like kind of watching reruns of a sitcom? Or, you know, am I just going to be bored? Well, of course, you see, without God, it would be boring. And it would feel like separation, because who just wants to exist forever? But you see, the God that we're meeting in heaven is not less satisfying than a sitcom. He's not a microscopic rubbish God. See, the heaven-filled world will bring us into the presence of an awesome, happy, awesome God. And sometimes people can have that feeling, you know, that, that die, when you die, you're kind of leaving the party before it's over. But actually for Christian, you're going to the party when you die. In the, in the Narnia books, Aslan says, The time is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended. This is the morning. That's what heaven is. This world is a shadow of what is coming. This, this world is only the first chapter of a bigger story that will just keep going on forever, where every chapter in the story gets better than the previous chapter. Death is the beginning of an ever-expanding adventure. Um, C.S. Lewis described heaven as, as like travelling to a place that gets bigger and bigger the further you go in. 
So it doesn't get smaller and smaller as you see more. But as you travel inwards, it expands. As you go inwards, it gets bigger. And think about the God you'll be meeting in this new world. This is the God that has made all of your ability to be happy and excited. He's made your nerve endings. He's made your excitement about food and sex and bungee jumping and roller coasters. He's made your sense of humour and your fun. And if God has made these things, think about what God himself must be like. These things, bungee jumping, sex, food, roller coasters, humour, they're, they're like the drops of water. But God is the ocean from whom the drops of water have come. Do we think that we can come up with more fun and more excitement and joy than God? God is the source of the happiness. And there's this um, theological, Jonathan Edwards, who lived hundreds of years ago, American guy. And he, he said, look, in heaven, God will, heaven won't just be a happy place, but God will increase our capacity to be happy. It's like, it's, like, um, it's like going to a well to get water. You've got this bucket. And you sink it down into the well and you get your water up. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, if, you, if you imagine like, uh, the happiness you get, it's like the water at the bottom of the well. And you bring up the happiness. But what happens is that God gives you a bigger and bigger bucket. So your capacity for happiness increases. It's always full, but it gets bigger. And that, that is what heaven will be like. You will never pass your peak. As you grow in happiness. Here on earth you might say, well, you know, when, 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 um, when you're having a good time in some kind of party or travelling, you'll say, I don't want this ever to end. But it always ends, doesn't it? But when you're in heaven, you'll say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. And it will be bigger and better. You will, you will experience millions of years of increasing happiness. I mean, it's difficult for us to really imagine, isn't it? But, but actually, it, it is what God has made you for. That is what it will be like knowing God. Your God will get bigger and bigger for you. He won't get smaller as you get to know more. He'll get bigger and bigger. I don't know if you've ever tried to um, read your way into a topic. You know, read your way into some, some bit of theology or something. And you think, oh yeah, this, you know, I'll read this book. And you read it and you think, oh wait a minute. Oh actually, I don't really know anything. And it's more like, more like the, the more you read, the more you realise you don't know. You feel like you're getting more and more ignorant as you get into this topic. Well that'll be like what it's what it's like getting to know God, except much bigger. Our God will just get bigger and bigger, and our happiness and the greatness of God will just get bigger. And that is the end point of everything in the Bible. That is what God is leading us to. That is the end. So let that end shape your now. Some people worry uh, because they're married now, and they, they worry that, well, when we're in heaven, the Bible tells us that we won't be married so won't heaven be therefore be like an eternal divorce, a kind of separation? But you see, heaven is when marriage really begins. Marriage, heaven is when marriage really begins. You see, I, there's this old theological... Uh, uh, there was a, a theological lecturer, he used to work at Oak Hill College up in North London, and um, he would be doing a lecture, and he'd say to his students, oh, um, of course, you know, when we're married in heaven. And then some gullible student would walk into the trap, and they'd put up their hand and say... Yes, but um, we're not going to be married in heaven. It says this. And he says, really? And then he would go on about how we're married to Christ. He would talk like half an hour about how we've been married with Christ. 
and, and uh, he'd, he'd set someone a trap and they'd walk straight, straight into it. And the, see, his point was that the very best marriages that we have now are only shadows of what is coming. They're drops of water from the ocean. They're, they're just tastes of something that is bigger. It isn't like you have real marriage now and in heaven you'll get kind of like a kind of, you know, a kind of booby prize with Jesus. It's, it's that what you have now is more like the booby prize. I'm not being rude, I'm married. But, but it's, it's more like, it's the taste. And it's the shadow. It's the, um, you know, it's, when you go into a supermarket and they're trying to get you to buy food, they have little bits of food on, on uh, cocktail sticks and a bit of cheese or ham. And so you taste, so you, get, so you buy, buy the big thing. Well, your marriage now is like the stuff on the cocktail stick. And so you're looking forward to something bigger. You know, a young boy can't, be, can't bear to be separated from his toy car because his toy car is everything to him. And he can't, he can't understand the idea of owning a Rolls Royce. But when he grows up and becomes a millionaire and gets a Rolls Royce, he's not looking for his toy car anymore, is he? Because he's got the real thing. This is heaven. Isn't it good? But we're going to look at this amazing picture of heaven in verses, um, from uh, verse 22 of chapter 21. Let's look at verse 22 and 27, the temple city. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I don't know if you've seen the film Interstellar. It's a great film. It's, a, it's one of those kind of mind-bending films. It's kind of sci-fi film. It's... And it, and it explores the kind of phenomenal distances there are in the galaxy. Now, I just I, I look this up. You know, the, the, the distance between our solar system and the next solar system, which is called Epsilon Eridani, is just 10.5 light years. You know, so if you travel the speed of light for, for 10.5 years, you'll get that. Okay? That's 100 trillion kilometers. Uh, if you went at the speed of a rocket as we've built it today, that would take you 400,000 years. Okay, so that's just the gap between us and the next solar system. That is an unbelievable distance, isn't it? But that gulf is nothing compared to the gulf between heaven and our grubby, sin-stained world. See, in the Bible, the only bridge across that chasm between our grubby world and heaven is the temple. God's temple is the place where heaven meets earth. And as you will know, the, the temple was, a, was originally a building in the center of Jerusalem. It was a super holy place where you went to meet with the presence of God. And so David speaks about this, this temple that wasn't built in his lifetime, but that he was looking forward to it. He says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I, may, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. And uh, in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the, um, the Old Testament pictures this new super temple that God is going to bring. And here in chapter 21, we get the temple, the true temple of God. This new city is a temple city. So back in verse 4, chapter 21, it is called uh, God's dwelling. We, we, we're told that God comes to dwell with his people. That's literally tabernacle. He will tabernacle, tabernacle amongst his people. In verse 11, we're told that the city is a holy place. 
It's a place filled with his presence. In verse 16, we're told the city is built uh, in the shape of a cube. Well, the Holy of Holies in the temple was shaped like a cube. In verse 15 and following, we're told the city is made of jewels and listed up all these jewels, didn't it? And those jewels, they were associated with the high priest in the temple. He wore a breastpiece, a breastplate with 12 precious jewels on it. And in verse 27 of chapter 21, which we read now, we're told that nothing unholy will be there. That is just like the Holy of Holies in the temple. So it says here in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no temple bridging heaven and earth here because heaven has come to earth. It is merged with earth. In the future world, we will live in the immediate permanent presence of the living God. And the temple will be obsolete because the world will be a temple. And at the center of this temple city is the throne of God and the Lamb. That's mentioned four times in the section I've read for us now. The throne of God and the Lamb. Now I mentioned that in our first talk. How that goes all the way through the book of Revelation. The throne and the Lamb. You have the God who rules in power and judgment and authority. And you have the, the sacrifice, the Lamb. The perfect sacrifice for our sins. And they go hand in hand. And so in, in the new world, the only way we can come in is through sacrifice. Through the sacrifice of the Lamb. But notice here that Jesus is eternally the Lamb. Eternally the Lamb. He's not just the Lamb who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, but He will be your Lamb forever and ever. He will always be the Lamb. You will only ever reach the temple city because of Jesus. And you'll only ever remain in the temple city because of Jesus. In other words, there will never be a moment in, in your future existence where you won't need to rely upon Him, where you won't be trusting Him and thanking Him. You will never get beyond your need of the cross You'll never get beyond your need of the cross. You will always need the Lamb. The throne and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus will be at the centre of your world. This will be your life in the temple city. Second thing we see is that this is a light-filled city. A light-filled city. Verses 23 to 27. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Now apparently, Paris is called the City of Light. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. You you can understand why Paris might be called the City of Light. It's a beautiful city. Um, But also read that Truro in Cornwall has dubbed itself the City of Light bit of a stretch, isn't it? Called Truro, the City of Light. But here we're not thinking about Paris or Truro, but we're thinking about something a million times better, a million times brighter, the New Jerusalem. And this is a city, it's not filled with human lights, but it's filled with God's light, with God's holy glory. God's holy glory. To come into God's presence is to come into beautiful and overpowering light. It is to be dazzled by spectacular glory. In the Bible, God, holiness, glory and light always go together. They talk, they're talking about the same thing. So um, in the beginning, 
of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, what does God do on the very first day? He creates light, doesn't it? Let there be light. He creates light. He fills a dark world with light. On uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses and the people have come out of Egypt, what happens? Light, glory, fire comes down on the mountain, doesn't it? And how are the Israelites led in the desert? By a pillar of fire, by light. And the tabernacle had a lamp that had to be attended day and night, be kept uh, um, alight. And who is Jesus? He's the light of the world, isn't he? He's the glory of God. And here we see in chapter 21, 22, that our heavenly home will be a place of holy, beautiful glory. As God fills his, his world with his presence. And we'll glorify him. And he'll share his glory with us. You too will share in something of the glory of God. And it will be refracted back to him as you glorify him and praise him. We're told in verse 25 there'll be no more sun. No more sun. Why won't there be any, why won't there be any more sun? Well, the sun was always just one of God's props. You know, well, uh, those of you who do Sunday school or work with kids, have kids... You, you make props, don't you, to try and teach them stuff. You know, you, you, you make crowns and stars and do all kinds of things with the kids to, to help them understand uh, the truths of the faith. And you're help, helping the, the, uh, the little ones to get um, big ideas. Well, God does the same for us. We're God's little ones. And God makes props for us to help us understand who he is. His props are big. He uses the sun. Think about the sun. The sun is the very thing that gives us life, isn't it? It's the thing, uh, you know, without the sun, we will die. Now just think about how powerful the sun is. The sun is 100 ti- 110 times bigger than the earth. It is 4.5 billion years old. Its surface temperature is 5,500 degrees centigrade. But its core temperature is 15 million degrees centigrade. Now, if the sun is like that, think about what that tells you about God. If God made the sun, and he made billions of other suns, actually much bigger suns than the sun of our solar system, what does that tell us about God? If, if the sun is like that, think of the glory and the light that is coming from God. Think of what it's like if God just reveals his glory and his light. This God of dazzling glory, he will move in with us, and he will fill his city with holy, beautiful lights. And we will live... In the overwhelming, breathtaking glory of God. Someone has called it, to, called it a, um, fiery proximity. We're living in fiery proximity. And in this new heaven-filled world, the, sound, the sun will be irrelevant. It's like when you have a blackout. You know, when you have a blackout and you, you kind of have to light the candles or matches. You know, when the, when, when, when the electricity comes back on, you don't keep the candles lit or the, or the matches lit. Because you've got the sun, you, you know, you've got the light in the room. You don't need them anymore. There will be no more darkness, verse 25, and chapter 22, verse 5. So this light, it won't be hidden away or kept under a lid, but it will go out to all the peoples of the world. It will be, uh, this, this new Jerusalem will be a city on a hill shining for all. Verse 24, have a look at verse 24 with me. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is the hope. In the Bible, 800 years before Jesus, prophet Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah 60. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. 
but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah 61 to 3. And that's fulfilled here in chapter 21. The city of light drawing all the peoples of the earth to itself. In, uh, in chapter 18, Babylon illuminated the world, we're told. But this city will shine for the world. So let's remember that while we wait for heaven, God has made us a mini colony of heaven in London. And, 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 a, and, and he's given us a glimmer of heaven's light. And we're shining for Jesus in London. And we're drawing the peoples of London to him. Earlier on uh, in the uh, second talk, sorry, third talk, we looked at uh, the city and we looked at how the, the city had these gates that faced the north, east, west, south. In other words, all the points of the compass are covered. And these, we're told that these gates are never shut. The gates are never shut. In other words, these gates open towards the whole world. The point is that God's people will be made up of all the people groups of the world. Back in verse 3 of chapter 21, it says um, that they will be his people. Literally, what that says is they will be his peoples. In other words, God's people will be full of peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is a big idea going all the way through the book of Revelation. God is summoning the peoples of the earth and making them one people before him. And that is why God has put you in London. That's why he's put you in your workplace. The city of London is getting a taste of that heaven, that heavenly light now. That's why he wants to send people to the unreached people groups of the world. Because he wants them to find his light. And so in London, we're living in one of the greatest mission fields ever. London is filled with peoples from every tribe, language and nation. If you're white British you're only one of the 45% of London. There's 1.3 million Muslims in London, 600,000 people from Indian background in London. The, the city is full of people from all over the world. So we have this mission field right on our doorstep. The, the nations have come to us. It's incredibly multicultural, and so we're drawing them in, uh, into our little mini colony of heaven. And so you and I, in our, in our work in London, we can be part of that gathering of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Let's, um, let's have that vision for our city. Let's have that vision to be a colony of many peoples gathered into God's light. And then finally, we come to the, move, to the, the moving picture of this new world, the Garden City, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great, great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruits yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now in the third talk, we focus very much on the kind of city, on the kind of urban picture. But here it's a bit more like a park, isn't it? It's a garden city. It's a place of river and trees. Um, I heard um, earlier this year a story about a prison in China, in the city of Gailin, 
And apparently people have been breaking into this prison. Not out of it, into it. Because apparently there's some beautiful blossoming peach trees in this prison. And so the prison authorities had to put up a sign saying, look, this isn't a tourist attraction, it's a prison. But a lot of people have been trying to get in. People, people had even tried to bribe the guards. And one newspaper suggested that if people really wanted to get in, if they're really that desperate, they should just commit a crime and then get in for free. Now, I don't know how desperate you'd be to see peach trees, but there is, gar- there, there is one garden that is worth any price getting into, and it's the garden in these verses. Because here we have a powerful picture of a new beginning. It's a new life with the Lord God and the Lamb. And the pictures here, they're drawn from the Old Testament as, as, as they are all the way through this. So you've got the garden, haven't you, Genesis 2 and 3. You've got the temple, 1 Kings 6. You've got the new temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And, and you've got all these pictures coming together. And the point here is that what has been lost is recovered. What we lost with Adam and Eve is recovered and it's restored. But it's made even bigger. It's not just a restoration of something that we lost. It's not just like losing your keys and then finding them again. But it's something much bigger. See, the Bible story is not a V. You know, it's like you start good, goes down, you come back. It's more like a tick. Start, start good, goes down, becomes even better. It's a tick. Okay? And we, will, we experience a bigger and better garden overflowing with life. See, the reality is that our life has lots of ups and downs to it, doesn't it? You know, today you feel well, tomorrow you're sick. Today you feel like everyone likes you, tomorrow you feel hurt. Today you feel like you've got friends, tomorrow you feel lonely. You hope for something, but then it doesn't work out as, as you expect. Our life now has lots of ups and downs to it. But our lives in the Garden City won't be like that. So in verse 3, we're told that the curse will be gone. Suffering and sinning will be gone. The serpent will be gone. The judgment will be gone. The temptations will be gone. Conflicts will be gone. And so here we get enjoyment without boredom, happiness without sadness, rest without tiredness, satisfaction without hunger. Someone has said that in heaven, happiness is a very serious business. And we see here that the garden is a place of abundant life. Instead of the curse, what do you get? Verse 1. You get the river of the water of life. You get a river of life to quench your thirst. Back in, chap- uh, back in chapter 21, verse 6, God had said to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. But here, here you don't just get a spring, do you? Here you get a whole river. Psalm 36 calls it a river of delights. And in Ezekiel, you, you get a picture of a huge life-giving river flowing out into the world from God's temple. And the thing about a river is that it's always flowing, isn't it? It's fresh and continual. A pond or a lake uh, might run out or get stagnant. But a river has more than you ever need. You know, if you're really, really thirsty, you might, you might drink two glasses of water. But you're never going to drink a river dry, are you? There's abundance. There's far more than you ever need. And then we're showing that the garden has a tree of life. It was the tree lost in the fall in Genesis 3. It's a tree remembered with a tree-like lampstand. In the tabernacle, it's a tree hoped for again in Ezekiel 47. But now we get a true and a better tree of life. And so here we're no longer dealing with types and shadows and symbols and pictures, but we're dealing with the reality. This tree will bear fruit all the time, every month. No tree does that. No tree bears fruit every, every month, but this tree does. In other words, it's got more fruit than you ever need. It's always harvest time. You're never spiritually hungry. 
You're never without what you need. And we're told that the, 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 the leaves of this tree will heal the nations. Verse 2, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's a picture of a new world. The new world pictured in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65. But here it's healed by God's garden. In other words, the world won't, won't just be a temple. It will be a garden. It will be God's garden. Eden will not be a place in God's world, but the world will be Eden. And so here we have the garden city overflowing with abundant life. But best of all, we see in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is what the garden is about. It's about seeing the face of God, the face of God. Now in the Bible, the face represents who someone is. Uh, and in, in the ancient world, criminals were banished from the king's presence and not allowed to see his face. And that was originally our situation before God. In, in, uh, in Exodus uh, 33, Moses is, is told no one can see God's face and live. But here in the garden, you get to gaze on God again. You get to have face-to-face intimacy. And we're told that God's name will be written on us. In Revelation 13, the followers of the beast have his name stamped on them. But here in verse 4, God's name is stamped on us. It's a, it's a symbol of ownership. God owns us. And it's to have his blessing. The high priest had God's name written on him as he went into the tabernacle. We'll have this permanent status as priests of access. And we'll serve and reign with him. At the same time, verse 3 talks about serving. Verse 5, it talks about reigning. We'll be humble before him, but we'll be sharing with him in rule and power and amazing privileges. What an amazing garden city. It's got everything we'll ever need and want and more. And it's not a second home. It's our true home. This is where we belong. And above all, we have the face of God shining on us in glory. So, we've been thinking about what heaven is all about, haven't we? What have we seen? We've seen that heaven is a new, transformed, physical world filled with the presence of God. We've seen it's a place where God makes his home with us forever. It's a place where we'll glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now, you see, most of the popular ideas about heaven actually forget God. Uh, you know, if you, if you watch a film that has anything about heaven in it, heaven is just really like a big version of my ideal life. And even Christians can think of it like that. But the Bible tells us that God is at the centre of everything. God is at the centre here. It's interesting that the New Testament never talks about believers going to heaven when they die. What the New Testament talks about is going to be with Jesus. As you see, heaven is about knowing Jesus, about knowing God. So how can we best prepare? We've, we've, we've kind of thought about that a little bit in questions and stuff. How can we best prepare as apprentices for the heaven-filled world? Well, we've suggested a number of things. But perhaps the, the, the most important thing that we can do is to f- grow in our knowledge of God today. To be grown in our relationship with God today. One of the frustrations sometimes I can feel in ministry is seeing people who get to the top of their careers, who do very well in worldly terms, and yet, in their spiritual life, they're like babies. In, one sense, in terms of their gifts and intelligence and the opportunities they've had, um, they, they are admirable and esteemed and have great influence. And yet, in their spiritual life, 
um, they are a long way back. And that is really sad, because actually, that is not a heaven-centered life, is it? Charles Spurgeon said, heaven has got to be in us now if we want to get to heaven in the future. And heaven is a place for God-lovers. So why give ourselves to things that disappear? Why give ourselves to things that don't matter? Why make sacrifices for things that are only good for this life? We're on an apprenticeship, and we're preparing ourselves for our real employment. And our real employment is to glorify and enjoy God forever. So let's live in light of that. Let's take as many people as we can with us. Let's have an eye on our lost neighbour. Let's look at the peoples around us. Let's snatch them for Jesus. And let's, um, let's run the race. Looking to the goal. Looking to what we're made for. To be lost in wonder as we gaze upon the glory of God forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded at the blessings and the promises in in this passage. We are full of wonder as we see the tree of life and the, uh, the river of life, as we behold the throne and the Lamb, as we live in your light, as we see the nations gathered to worship you, and we get to be priests in your presence, enjoying you, serving you forever. What, what a privilege. And fathers, we've gone through the, these um, scriptures. We've just had a little taste. Your spirit has been here with us. We've just got a glimpse. We've uh, seen something of the glory. And Father, we don't know when you want to take us home. We don't know your plans, your purposes, your timings. But Father, we pray that today and tomorrow and this coming week and the months ahead, you would help us to live in light of this amazing, abundant world that you will make. And Father, we pray that you pour out the knowledge of yourself upon us, that we would be prepared to know you, enjoy you, delight in you, gaze upon you forever and ever. Amen. Um, Andy, thank you so much for um, uh, teaching us these last couple of days, and um, we're just hugely grateful to you. There's a card that's been going around. Where's it ended up? Um, with uh, lots of little scribbles of uh, thank you and just uh, thank you. Uh, I, there's um, a couple of things we want to give thanks to you. I think the card itself, it's a lovely card um, that uh, has a quote from Philippians one and. Uh, when we pray for you, we thank God for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we do praise God for your partnership in the gospel and where you've encouraged us to go to Revive because that's where you've seen partnership in the gospel. Um, it's wonderful to be um, linked to you. Thank you for those encouraging words at the beginning of this talk, um, uh, the way you can see the Holy Spirit working in us and uh, growing us together. Um, but... Uh, yeah, we want to give thanks for you. What are the particular things that we can pray for you as we send you back to the congregation that's lent you to us? Um, uh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, I guess, you know, physician, heal thyself, so that I, wouldn't, that I would imbibe these things in which I've had the privilege of preaching, that these things would be real 
in my life and shaping me personally, um, shaping our you know our our marriage and and shaping the church life. Um, that um, that I would be uh, helped by others and and I would be refreshed in these things as well. So it's a great thing about preaching about them a few different times. You kind of like oh yeah, um, so you you could pray that for me. I think. And and for your church. Um, I think. Um, We've got, our, we've got our own weekend away coming up in March and uh, we've got a guy come speak on, on the resurrection there so I think um, you've had your weekend now you pray for hours now and um, uh, you kind of owe it to us now I've come here so you kind of owe us a bit of prayer uh, so, so pray for us so that, I mean these are good times these weekends away and uh, um, you know you try and get people on them because you think they're so good and I just um, yeah you can pray pray that God would bless us there Thank you. Let me pray for you now. Father, thank you so much for Andy. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him um, of understanding and communication. Uh, Thank you that he didn't rely on his own wisdom, but taught us faithfully from your word. And we pray that we wouldn't be thinking of ourselves as camels who've just stored up and uh, put it into the reserves of our memory and think that we can carry on. Please help us to... Keep drilling back into your word, uh, speaking that truth in love into each other's lives. Uh, We pray that uh, this weekend would be the beginning of something uh, rather than uh, the end in itself. Um, Father, thank you for the way that uh, Andy served us. Thank you for uh, Katrina and uh, for uh, the church family at St. John's lending him to us this weekend. Um, And thank you for the way that you've used him to bless them. And um, we pray for them, as, uh, as Andy asked, that this weekend uh, coming up in March would be a huge encouragement for them as they think about the resurrection, as they think about uh, the wonder of uh, the Lord Jesus who not only gave himself for us but conquered death and uh, gives us new life in him and we're identified with him uh, for all eternity. We pray that you would bless them, that you would deepen relationships there, um, that you continue the good work that you've begun in them. And we pray for Andy that, as he said, he wouldn't just be teaching these truths and enjoying learning them, but that you would be continually seeking them deep into his heart, that he would live out the joy of looking forward to his heavenly home, um, the excitement of that, and uh, living in the light of it in such a way that his attitude is infectious uh, to everyone he meets. Help him as a husband to love and serve Katrina, and help him as a pastor, um, as a family member. Um, in his church family to uh, grow with them and enable and help them to grow. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.